approach time 34, approach button 17, the altimeter 29097. It's no secret the science community has been reluctant to address and apply scientific analysis to the phenomenon. Today's guest is a scientist and leading UFO researcher who's devoted over 50 years to the study of the phenomenon. His vast body of research includes the physical evidence, missing time events, UFO abduction experiences, as well as the historic and Royal Australian Air Force reports. His experience demonstrates the scientific method is possible through the study of UAP hotspots or flaps. If you can go to those areas and witness the same sort of thing, you know, under observation or have recording equipment, then you've got the potential of something that comes pretty close to the mainstay scientific method of a repeatable experiment. Our discussion includes the history of ufology, the bony mountain flap, his encounters with the paranormal aspects of the phenomenon and angel hair. All of this and much more as I speak to Bill Chalker. I am Brett Moffat and you are listening to the UFOs of Oz podcast. Bill Chalker is one of the world's leading UFO researchers. He was born in New South Wales, Australia and has a science degree with majors in chemistry and mathematics. As we'll soon discover in this episode and more to follow, Bill's investigation and research into the phenomenon goes back at least 50 years. Not only is he one of the world's leading experts into the study of UFOs of the modern era, but he's also undertaken extensive research and published important papers on many topics, including the Australian Physical Evidence, Australian Historical Reports pre-1947, the Royal Australian Air Force and UFOs, Australian Missing Time Events and UFO Abduction Experiences. Thank you so much, Bill. It's an honour and a pleasure to have you as a guest on the UFOs of Oz. Mm, it's a pleasure. And um, I really am kind of thrilled that you're focusing on the Australian UFO scene or UAP scene, I, I should say. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, our history is, is just as rich as anywhere else. So um, I'm really excited uh, with this program to be introducing the world or reinforcing to the world that um, the phenomenon has been here just as long as it has anywhere else. And it's a very, uh, a very rich um, uh, source of information. Um, but, but when I think of 50 years, I think of, I, I think of the golden wedding anniversary. And I think of a, I think of relationships. And so when I think of the relationship you've had to the phenomenon for 50 years, has that changed over that time? And, or, or can you, I know it must be hard, but can you actually summarise um, your relationship to the phenomenon? Oh, look, I think um, the reason why I've stayed, well, it's a matter of opinion, relatively sane in this subject, um, it's kind of um, uh, because I've sort of had a kind of a, a whole bunch of different perspectives about this subject, you know, I, Obviously, with that background, um, you know, I had sort of 25 years experience in quality assurance as well, really about sort of trying to gather together quality data and do quality kind of investigations, that kind of thing. And um, uh, I've also focused on the science perspective and trying to see if there's any uh, merit in the UFO subject as a serious scientific subject, which I definitely feel there is, and it's great to see the rest of the scientific field starting to catch up, basically, and uh, 
that almost seems to be a bit of a mad kind of scramble now. But um, the rest of it, though, I come at it from a, a historical point of view as well. I'm fascinated by the history of the subject, the sociology of the subject, the folklore of the subject, the psychology of the subject. Uh, you name it, I come at it from all sorts of different points of view. Um, you know, the paranormal or what we refer to as the paranormal. Um, that's basically because we don't quite understand some of the aspects of the human condition, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But there's so many different viewpoints that one can draw into this. So any real serious ongoing investigation of UFOs, UAPs should take on board all those kinds of strands. And mm. uh, there's certainly a lot that can be uh, on offer in terms of people uh, who, like me, have persisted for sadly decades, um, <laughs> uh, that kind of stuff. But, but nevertheless, it's, it's been a lifelong interest and something that I've taken a lot of interest, pleasure, uh, and it certainly made my life a lot more interesting and uh, exciting in many ways. And um, it's uh, definitely something that uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be persisting until I, I push off this mortal coil, so, whatever. So uh, I've still got plenty of energy for this subject. So, you know, there's a lot to be frustrated about in many respects, but uh, a lot of um, newer players are coming into it. And I don't think they're, a lot of them aren't really acknowledging what's gone before and really... Um, you know, the old adage, if you don't understand or don't acknowledge the history of what's gone before, you'll be condemned to repeat it. And there's an awful lot of uh, that going on in terms of people making major so-called discoveries in the UFO field, something they'll probably realise eventually catch up to the idea that it's, it's all been done before. Um, mm. uh, you know, even the current kind of uh, interest and um, direction of consciousness, that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff has been in play since the 50s, um, right back to the 40s, uh, that kind of thing. So it, it's uh, most things aren't new, uh, but certainly the uh, level of mainstream interest and apparent credibility being given to it um, of late uh, in the last several years has been pretty interesting and exciting to see. So mm -hmm. whether it's sustained the uh, thing, but I think too much is got out of the bag I think you know the cat is definitely out there and in amongst it you know and, and uh, I don't think there's any pulling back um, but I wouldn't be surprised if that that took place either you know I've, I've got an open mind basically but, mm. yeah it's good to see the yeah. level of interest and mainstream that's going on at the moment and I hope it remains sustained. Mm. Do you feel um, with the conscience consciousness thing actually that you mentioned before do you feel we're better placed now than ever before to learn about that because of the the um the sensory systems and and whatnot that we've we've got available to us yeah well i think i think yes yeah, certainly yeah but, but I, I also think that um researchers should engage with what's been studied before etc you know while i was at the university of new england armadale during my science degree uh, i got involved with the fledgling um University of New, New England Parapsychological Research Society, and uh, I got seconded to be, uh, be the uh, chairman of the Ghost and Poltergeist Subcommittee of all things. Uh, and this is back in the 70s, and uh, I kind of was okay with that because I just saw it as a a way of drawing in all sorts of information about diverse subjects, be it ghosts, poltergeists, but also. UFOs, and at that period, actually, there was a lot of um, standy 
standoffish type approaches between the parapsychology field and the UFO, UAP field, you know, never should the twain meet. There is no connection. But, of course, around that, the middle of the 70s, Jacques Vallée was coming out with some fairly innovative books, you know, particularly um, the um, things like The Invisible College, which essentially was focusing on that weird paranormal kind of uh, area. And, uh, in fact, I think it got reprinted in paperback as UFOs, The Psychic Solution. But that wasn't the primary focus of his book. Uh, um, but the Invisible College was really that, that term that was given to people, uh, scientists and that kind of thing, that were looking at the subject underground, so to speak, and not really willing to put their reputations on the, you know, on the line in terms of this subject, but nevertheless appreciating that, uh, that there's something worthwhile looking into. So and there's a long lineage, and certainly the 70s were the beginning of. Uh, um, some of the current players like Hal Puttoff, um, that kind of thing, um, uh, Chris Green, um, all these different researchers that keep popping up in the literature right now or in the field right now, they were there conducting things like, you know, uh, remote viewing experiments under, uh, well, through Stanford University or the Stanford Research Institute, but uh, really through the auspices of the CIA. So there's a long, long history of that, and a lot of that was caught up in UFO research at the time. Mm. Uh, I'll probably, from time to time, if I'm talking in a historical context, I'll, I'll call the phenomenon what it was being called at that time, such as flying sources, UFOs, UAPs. Mm. There's a whole host of uh, abbreviations to it. Absolutely. Um, when you first became interested in the mystery of UFOs in the mid to late 60s, was Project Blue Book and the Condon Report known to you or were they more accepted back in back at that at that time? Were they more readily accepted um, by ufologists or? Well, well, initially, initially the situation when the Condon Committee uh, was commissioned by the US Air Force, it was a lot of people had mixed feelings about it. Um, I was just sort of kind of coming into it and being aware of it as, as a teenager, a young teenager, and uh, starting to read up a lot and all that kind of stuff. And 1966, for example, that's when really I can trace back my at least um, recollected interest. Um, uh, my old hometown of Grafton on the north coast of New South Wales had a bit of a UFO flap and police were amongst the witnesses chasing so-called UFOs across the countryside. And uh, uh, sort of disappointingly, I... I, I didn't see anything, but it certainly sort of opened my my mind to the subject. And by that stage in the mid-60s, um, there was that kind of crescendo building up, particularly in the United States, where um, you had um, a lot of best-selling books, um, that kind of thing. Uh, Frank Edwards, um, Flying Source, Serious Business. Uh, uh, there was um, the Betty and Barney Hill story uh, written, uh, essentially the, the Interrupted Journey, uh, uh, so there was a whole bunch of books coming out, and so there was a lot of popular interest. But finally, um, um, when the Condon Committee came along, um, people were a bit hopeful that it would be a legitimate scientific investigation, um, and maybe um, uh, that you know decades of uh, Project Blue Book, the U.S. Air Force's project, uh, might not have been the uh, uh, the be all and end all of it because a lot of people it was quite evident that uh, a lot of the investigations that they did were more or less sort of targeted at shutting down popular interest because some of the explanations they came up with with some quite striking cases 
left a bit to be desired. But uh, so signs were hopeful, you know, and so by the end of 66, on the committee were kicking off, but things started to go off the rails very, very quickly. Mm. And so by um, the end of 68, when the report was starting to be woven together, cobbled together, um, there was already major scandals coming out so-called notorious trick memo from Robert Lowe, who was the um, the main um, kind of assistant to Condon. And uh, Condon himself uh, revealed a lack of serious interest in the UFO subject and seemed to focus more on the wild. What I, I, I refer to two things, the UFO reality or UFP reality and the UFO theatre. Mm. And most of the time you're dealing with UFO theatre. Um, got nothing really much to do with the, the, the core UFO phenomenon, mm. but it, it, it's what you see and what you get. And uh, Condon, with his obvious kind of lack of um, uh, enthusiasm for the subject, um, was connecting with contactees and some of the, the wild side, you know, the, the wild, unbelievable side, you know. And, mm. and um, he, he was only too happy to be turning up a controversial kind of, uh, situations, getting himself photographed with the odd wild contact claim and predictions that a flying source is going to land and all that kind of stuff and mm. nothing happens, of course. That fed into the narrative that he seemed to be moving the project towards. But uh, a lot of players that were sort of somewhat shut out of the the project, like Heineck and um, Dr. Alan Heineck, who had been for a number of decades, the... Uh, Astronomy consultant to the US Air Force project. Uh, they they were um, shut out. You know, James McDonald, um, one of the leading atmospheric physicists, had been conducting a campaign to get serious interest. Um, and um, but they, I think they could see that things weren't coming together very well. So by 1969, 1969 to me was a pivotal year. Not only did we have um, men landing on the moon and that kind of thing, um, we had um, this kind of focus on a fascinating subject, which by, with me as a teenager at that stage, um, um, I looked at the content committee report, which basically recommended that there was nothing of any scientific merit to the UFO subject. And yet, even as a, uh, a teenager, I, I was still mindful of the fact that when you've got a, a scientific study and a third of the case data that the report actually examined was unexplained, Sort of opens your eye up. You know what's Absolutely. going on there. Like, mm. how does yeah, one got one got? I, unlike a lot of people, and particularly most journalists of the day as well. Apologies to Ross Coltart, who I remember <laughs> really impressed with, him and, and it's great to see what he's doing. Um, a lot of the media mindset was uh, the report was helpfully uh, at the beginning of the report had Condon's conclusions and. Uh, that was quite helpful, and he was helpfully providing a summary of the way he saw it. But the evidence shows that, in fact, Condon didn't even have access to his own report in any great depth when he wrote those conclusions. Um, mm. Essentially, he was telling it as it is, uh, the way he saw it. Mm. And uh, even Roy Craig, who was one of the chief investigators for the Condon report, he was a chemist um, like I would become eventually as well, and he wrote his own memoir. He said the Condon Committee was essentially... Uh, a business type report in the sense that they got what they were aiming for essentially mm. Mm. 
and out for the US Air Force to publicly withdraw themselves from the UFO game and, and, and to send a message to the wider community that live along folks, there's nothing worth noticing here. <laughs> but in Australia in 1969, uh, um, the UFO phenomenon or the UAP phenomenon did not pay much attention to the Convict Committee report because they put on one hell of a show during 1969. And that's when I really got involved. Um, there was all, a huge amount of sightings going on uh, during 1969. Mm. And on the north coast, uh, New England, that kind of area, there was a lot going on. Mm. And uh, that's what drew me to the subject. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I, I read the report multiple times, cover to cover, mm. the whole thing. You know, more than, a bit more than a few, uh, over a thousand pages. Uh, mm. I don't think too many journalists would have read it at the time. Mm. Not too many scientists appeared to have read it. Um, mm. But a, a number did. You know, like Dr. Peter Storick from Stanford University, he read it. Um, Heineck read, read it, obviously. McDonald read it. Now, they all, any serious scientist that examined it in depth kind of thought, yeah, I don't particularly agree with this conclusion. You know, like it, there, there's plenty of data here that suggests that there's something worthwhile looking at. But nevertheless, the Connor Committee report became the mainstream kind of picture of what the UFO phenomenon was about. Flying saucers were basically crap. Move on. And if you want to uh, have a serious career in science, don't get involved with UFOs. There's no mm. brownie points involved. <laughs> Live long. So, mm. yeah. And and as you said, and, and it had, an impact, had a big impact. Yeah, um, you, you were right in the thick of it in 1969 too, weren't you? Because you um, you investigated a couple of cases: one at uh, Bunga Walburn, uh, the other at Harwood Island. Um, yeah, I, and, I wouldn't say that my investigation at that point in time. I was just sort of coming up to speed, but. My family knew um, the owner of the property who happened to be the local member of parliament, uh, Ian Robinson. And so I got a kind of a, an okay to go out there. And by the time I got out there as a, as a teenager, uh, uh, which was um, uh, several days after it had happened and gotten the publicity, mm. um, hundreds of people had gone there before. But luckily, um, I was able to subsequently make contact with a a local investigator by the name of Joe Tester, who was a, a local area electronics technician, and he was he appears in some of the photographs with Ian Robertson, the parliamentarian, the owner of the property, and he he had conducted a pretty uh, detailed investigation. And by the time I was there, hundreds of people had trampled over the area and all the rest of it, and mm. the story had gone agog, you know, in Australia wide. I think it got coverage overseas as well that get a flying saucer land here, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And there were anecdotal reports suggesting that something was going on. Uh, flood mitigation workers had seen top-shaped UFOs or something like that that seemed to be hovering in that property area. Um, but it was the – and all over the north coast of New South Wales, there's quite a large number of similar kinds of ground traces being found. Mm. And um, – People were looking at conventional explanations, alternative explanations, and uh, there turned out to be quite a lot of UFO sightings and some extraordinarily compelling. One of the most compelling was the one at Harwood Island, but I, I didn't find out about it, that until the woman involved had written a letter to me, I think in about 1972. And so uh, to Harwood Island, um, it... it, it 
the, the area around there is mainly used for suckling crop or sugarcane. Um, and she's walking home and hears the violent rustling of the, the cane crop. You know, um, this is just on after twilight, so it's starting to get pretty dark. Mm. And so she's heading home and and then is aware of like a light mass coming across the top of the sugarcane. Now, the sugarcane is really violently moving. Mm. And, and um, she, um, she had this bizarre feeling that, that it was like a, a vehicle moving across the top of the sugarcane. Now, and it's up around about 10, 15 feet. Mm. And it was like a high beam effect came down straight onto her. And at that mm. point, she felt as though she was rising off the ground, as if she was being levitated off the ground. Mm. And clearly, she was terrified. You know, and and uh, um, then suddenly, the, the high beam effect switched off, and then she could make out, and, and then she, she realized she's still on the ground. Mm. And, and then she could make out clearly this dish-shaped object with a dome hot, sitting on top of the, the sugarcane crop. Mm. And so, um, fairly impressive close encounter, and we're literally within... Uh, 15, 20 feet of the object, mm. and, and then it it, it, um, it it then moved away and moved off at high speed. Now there were people fishing nearby mm. and actually witnessed the object leaving. So it wasn't just herself that saw this, but like a lot of the UFO phenomenon at the time, there was much of it was hidden. A lot of people wouldn't come out and report it, mm. and hers was a classic case of that. But a very impressive witness. And so I got the opportunity to talk to her, and um, so that really impressed me and. Um, I used my kind of I, I love drawing and art and all that kind of stuff in all its dimensions so I appreciate the stuff that you're doing as well big time Thank and, you. and so I, I used my sketching skills to draw a lot of things that I got involved with you know and mm. I did a sketch of her standing there um, having this encounter that kind of stuff but mm. that, that highlighted the whole Harwood Island area is what I would call one of those little flap areas that repeatedly had some very interesting and unusual activity, and so, and it was so uh, consistent in some respects that we became confident, particularly myself, um, as we went on, that there was like this cyclic phenomena going on. 1966, 1969, mm. 1972. And so by the time 1975 rolled along, we were fully confident that something was going to happen. And it did, mm. and then uh, in '78, we were all ready to really pounce on some of the local areas like Harwood Island and, and uh, New England up around Vegas Creek Falls and other places uh, all repeat phenomena mm. and uh, we did get it uh, in early 78 mm. uh, and uh, but after that that pattern just seemed to fall away and, and now it's uh, tr the trouble is with any pattern that you seem to receive out of the UFO data half the time you're never sure whether it's it's just a false fit or whether in fact it's realistic phenomena because there's a lot, lot of signal to noise ratio going on you don't know you, you've got to spend a lot of time trying to separate the wheat from the chaff and sure and, and help, help throwing it the baby out with the bathwater kind of routine um mm. uh, it's a uh, almost a full-time thing one could do this full-time if one had the absolutely um, absolutely but more often than not it's not that well funded and that's why heineck often used to say um this subject waits for a more serious kind of engagement from mainstream science that needs deep funding mm. and uh, uh, serious funding and multidisciplinary activity. Now, a lot, a lot of that did take place from time to time, mm. but it was in 
uh, limited periods from time to time. And so, yeah, so mm. that's a, that was my kind of engagement. And 69 was a very important year because you had that official report, the conduct committee report saying, nothing here, live <laughs> on. But here we are, you know, little old Australia just besieged by UFOs. I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know whether I could have entirely believe what the Connor Report is telling me, but I, I read it so many times. You know, there was a hardback copy of it in the local town library, and so I had it out on almost permanent loan, <laughs> reading over and over again, <laughs> trying to make sense of the damn thing. And uh, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a, an agenda piece, as far as I'm concerned. You know, it was there to, to sure. pass on a message saying, that, mm, "Absolutely, yeah, move on." So, and so the Air Force used that as an excuse to shut down, uh, uh, shut down Blue Book, and, yep. uh, which they formally did, mm. and that was supposed to be the game. So basically, uh, how, how to say, a lot of the civilian groups went as a period of what are the winter of our discontent kind of thing. Some mm. survived, some didn't. Mm. Uh, and um, so it was a bit of a, seemed as a, a dark period, but, but for those anybody that was actually involved, serious in the UFO field, it was like, UFOs never left, you know. They just, sure. um, didn't get the mainstream publicity uh, courtesy of the um, the ridicule factor that was now firmly in place. Mm. Um, yeah, science spoken. Um, uh, and, uh, but a, a number of scientists weren't listening. Um, they felt that there was a legitimate scientific problem. One of the key people was Dr. Claude Poir of the French equivalent to NASA, mm. CNES, and he managed to, he had the ear of... Uh, I think it was Mitterrand, uh, and got funding to start a, a specialised UFO UAP agency, mm. which became JAPAN, mm. which still in better forms exists today. Mm. And France became a bit of an oasis of serious interest. And uh, mm. um, the US has always been in catch-up mode. You never know what they're doing and heavily compartmentalised, but there's evidence that serious investigation was ongoing. Absolutely. Um Let's set the scene still in 1969, but um, August 30, um, you tell the curious tale of relaxing on your surfboard in the middle of the Clarence River and you notice streams of a white fine filament floating down the river. And um, this, was, this, was, this was, I guess, the beginning of your intense interest, aside from the, the other investigations you'd done, but this, this physical evidence or the angel hair. Can you tell us about that day and just explain to the audience what the angel hair is or it's purported to be? Yeah. Yeah, well, earlier on, the, the, the ground trace of Bungwalvon had set the scene for me to undertake a serious focus on so-called UFO landing cases, and that's been a long-term obsession for multiple decades. I've investigated hundreds of them. Mm. But that event in August of 69 was a little different. And he said it wasn't my surfboard, it was a mate's surfboard. <laughs> but there I am in the middle of the, um, as we were wont to do as teenagers back in the day, um, sort of spending the afternoon uh, floating down the river. And um, uh, I was trying to stay pretty close to the shore, but um, I happened to look, across, uh, look up and saw all this um, fine material coming down. By that stage, I was fairly well acquainted, acquainted with UFO law. And... Um, that to me suggested, oh, what am I looking at here? Oh, it looks like a great example. I took it to be spider's web, uh, the, you know, the ballooning, the ballooning of young spiderlings that ride the, the web 
and use it as a, almost a form of hot air ballooning uh, mm. across the landscape. And anybody who has a spider phobia, I'd, I'd hate, you know, <laughs> you know, perhaps best not, best not become familiar with just how much migration takes place. Um, the numbers are vast and huge. So to <laughs> me, it was a spectacular example of nature. And um, ever since this experience, I uh, have become deeply interested in spiders, spiders web. You know, I'm possibly called rather obsessed with spiders and I love spiders. So, and even more so, I love spiders web. So I've tried to learn as much as I can about spiders web and their characteristics. But And the reason for it was this experience um, in particular. Uh, because I'm, I'm paddling over to the, um, the river's edge near my friend's place and um, I'm thinking, oh, this would be a great opportunity to get a sample of uh, spider's web just in case the unlikely prospect that uh, I might get a bit of this so-called angel's hair that had been linked, particularly in French data. Uh, and uh, and it, 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 events like this had occurred earlier in Australia as well and other places in the United States and plenty of other places. And so there was this linkage with UFOs and this fine, wispy stuff coming down. But the two classic cases were, uh, I think, at Oulon and Glark in France, pardon the pronunciation. Uh, but um, I did get involved with a French UFO researcher, Gildas Bordas, who, who helped me and we worked together to do a creation for the Canadian Discovery Channel uh, to recreate these events. Um, for the show Close Encounters. And so you can see us talking about that particular case on on various sites, et cetera, I guess, on the internet. But, but when I got to the shore, um, I started looking at this stuff. I couldn't see any spiders anywhere, and that I didn't think that was unusual. Um, I fully expected to have little spiders all over my hands kind of stuff. Mm. Because, um, but they do... Di- disengaged fully quickly so that wasn't too unusual and there was great wallops of this stuff everywhere mm. uh, and I'm thinking this, um, uh, and I had a great bundle of it in my hand to roll it up and it was a large ball and I'm looking mm. at it and it disappears and I'm thinking what you know th- this is crazy and I repeated it and it was, and it was it, it, this stuff was going from what I would subsequently learn as a chemist it appeared to be showing sublimation going from solid to gas missing that liquid phase mm. now i thought maybe it's the water but i've this is the thing i've i've done this repeatedly with spiders with and i can't replicate what i saw mm. so immediately as soon as i thought oh geez you might have something really interesting here i rushed to my friend's place screaming at his mother saying give me glass jars you know or with lids you know on and she's thinking what's bill on about so i run back and by the time i got there there's nothing there i dive onto the surfboard go down the river following the breeze, and I still nothing in sight. Get home later um, and find that my parents had seen something up in the sky. I, I wasn't actually looking directly up. A number of townsfolk saw something pass over. Now, we don't know what that may have been. Uh, some suggestion it may have, might have been a, one of these um, uh, large balloon arrays, etc. but uh, that didn't seem to be the case, and it certainly didn't account for what I saw at ground level uh, handling this material. So ever since then, I've been fascinated by that phenomenon and trying to get a, a, another opportunity to um, get examine that. And the closest uh, was um, possibly an experience at Corindai. Um, I don't recollect specifically what year, but it was uh, certainly, I think, late 
1990s or early 2000s, something of that nature. Mm. And a black woman had observed, it was almost like a rerun of of, of Oleron or like the French classic French cases from the 1950s uh, with a dumbbell-shaped object and smaller objects and um, sort of coming together and then there's material starting to come down and material disappearing. Uh, mm. uh, and uh, she grabs a sample of it, puts it into a container and puts glad wrap, unfortunately not that secure, uh, over the top. But then she gets gets on and tries to find somebody to report it to. She thinks, UFO. It's a UFO hotline, but unfortunately, it was a commercial UFO hotline, and it seemed to be spending more time keeping her on the phone with the money, oh. the cost of the call <laughs> increased as it went. Mm. And um, eventually, did make contact with the local UFO group here in Sydney, mm. and they kindly uh, passed her details on to me because they knew I was interested in this kind of aspect. And so, uh, she'd, she'd actually, after the initial phone calls, um, had gone outside because when she looked at the container, it had gone from a large amount down to the size of a pinhead mm. inside the container. And then um, it then um, she went outside. And I think at that point, this is now about 20 minutes, half an hour to an hour later, mm. um, she found material on the tree, which I suspected was genuine spider's web. And she mm. puts that into the container with this other stuff. Okay. Closer to Eventually, that container comes to me, and I had access to laboratory stuff at that stage. And so, I, I the, the one thing about physical evidence is you need to look at the chain of custody, the connection, um, the relationship to the event is what you're looking at. Be it a ground trace or material, um, this this kind of spider's web-like material. Is there a direct relationship between that and the UFO event reported? Mm. And in, in this case, it was a strong link. And uh, um, so, but unfortunately, when I, I interviewed her, I, I started to think, uh, wish she put it into something a bit more secure. And um, I told her, just put it inside multiple Ziploc bags, put it in the freezer, mm. and, and as soon as you can. Uh, mm. To, uh, and she sent it to the, the local UFO group, which kindly passed it on to me, and mm. I put it back. Mm. And then uh, out, used a, a syringe to to um, sample the uh, airspace, mm. thinking by this stage possibly contaminated with a lot of bona fide spider's web, <laughs> uh, did gas chromatography and a few other things, and uh, uh, nothing untoward. And then... Uh, Physically, then started to carefully open up the bag to look at the material inside, and um, the stuff I found was entirely stable, exactly what you'd expect with spider's web, mm. unless it's been subject to the vagaries of the air or being blown away, that kind of stuff. So, mm. yeah, uh, unfortunately, well, that close, mm. that close. But and then later, the more recent case that uh, I examined that. Uh, I was pretty sure from the beginning was spider's web, but they were reporting that this stuff seemed to disappear. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I think it's definitely spider's web, but as it turned out, it was a fairly vague, it was more or less being blown away and that kind of stuff. That's the impression I had. Mm. And the stuff that I eventually got, and the witness was very interested, um, but um, I was saying to them, 
that is definitely spider's web. And, mm. and um, well, most likely, and plus, I was, she, he, they had young children, and I wanted to make sure that they, you might want to do a little bit of you know, benign pest control because uh, you might have a house full of spiders very soon. <laughs> uh, because um, they, they, they said, yes, we're seeing thousands of spiders, mm. just little spiders, and they said, eventually you won't see them, but uh, they're around. Mm, absolutely. Uh, mm. uh, the reality is that spiders occupy a lot of space in our human environment, so, mm. yeah, mm. fascinating creatures. So. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Um, the quest continues for another sample of uh, possibly bona fide angels with uh, angel hair. So, mm, yeah. mm. And I know you've 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 I, written I'm a book on the topic. Yeah. Mm. Um and, and and we'll we'll I'm sure we'll um tackle it um in, in other episodes. But um uh you mentioned earlier about the flap 69, 72, 75, but in 72, uh almost on cue, you have your own experience. Uh, at university, um, and, and I'm sure it was probably totally un, unexpected for you because it had all been happening around you. You probably um, didn't expect that you you may actually walk into your own um, encounter, but can you tell us a, a bit about that? Yeah, well, that was interesting because um, uh, just prior to that, uh, I was doing a four-hour chemistry practical class and... Uh, they would go from about two to six and on your mind once you completed that long practical class you wanted to get down to the college campus and get food because the cafeteria would close you had a very narrow window so all that was on my mind was food so <laughs> i'm rushing across the quadrangle of the college and, and become straight aware of a, a couple of students male and female like bailey kind of knew and I think they were with another college passing through the quadrangle and they're having this peculiar conversation. And I thought, what the hell are they on about? And saying, he's saying to her, can you see what I can see? And she, uh, oh, no, she said that to him. Uh, and he says, yes, but I don't want to. And they're looking up. And I thought, what, what the hell are they on about? So I look up and they're straight above me. And I, at that stage, I'd lost track of them. Mm. And I'm looking straight up. It's uh, just coming to twilight and seeing a what appeared to be very clearly an egg-shaped metallic thing um, directly up, passing slowly across the sky. And I knew that in its trajectory, it would be blocked out via the laundry, the narrow laundry building directly ahead of me. Mm. And uh, I thought, if it's a balloon, if it's an aircraft or whatever, and it clearly didn't seem to be that, mm. um, it gave the impression of a large size um, dish shaped silver metallic object mm, mm. Uh, really quite striking mm. I, I thought I run through the, the laundry because straight beyond that there were vast open sports fields very open area mm. I rushed through nothing there I mm. thought where'd you go now like mm. um, come back and there's still nothing there because I followed its trajectory just as it started to um, disappear over the tops of the college buildings. And, mm. and so inevitably I expected to see it as I rushed through because it was only a matter of seconds, mm. nothing there. Mm. So I did the usual checks, aircraft, balloon launches, all that kind of stuff, no explanation. Mm. But earlier in the day, uh, you know, by the way, the shape, <laughs> when you think about it, Tic Tac. <laughs> 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 it looked, looked like Tic Tac. You know, the old, uh, you know I, I obviously couldn't be certain of its size, but if, if it was up around a, 
uh, a, a long way away, it would have been huge in size. Its angular size was quite substantial. Yeah. So uh, it, it certainly was higher than the roof of the, um, I think it was two or three levels of the college. Um, it, even at a couple of hundred feet, it would have been of the order of about 30 to 40 feet. But that's, there's no way to be certain of that because mm. it was against a clear sky. Mm. And um, mm. so, um, but earlier on, in my uh, during the day, I bumped into a, a person who knew I was. Remember the the ghost and poltergeist subcommittee, mm. uh, the chairman thereof, mm. and he shooting <laughs> comes up to me and says, oh, "You wouldn't want to know it. There's some weird shit that took place out at Mount Butler last night, or, or, or early hours of the morning, at same day as my sighting." Yep. And I say, "What what are you talking about?" And he says, "Oh well, yes, some guys. I, I took him to say, <laughs> and this is embarrassing to, to say." Um, I thought he said monkey in a shroud. And I thought, well, what do you want to tell me about a bloody monkey in a shroud for? You know, that's, <laughs> I don't think, no, are you allowed to keep monkeys? And then he said, no, 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 I'm, t- I'm talking monk, a monk in a shroud, you know, that kind of stuff. And I had that confusion there for a while, mm. what the hell he was going on about. <laughs> but he told this story and it, and it took me a while to, because of exams and stuff like that, to get out to this property. But it turned mm. out during 72 and into 73, Mount Butler became this classic UFO flap area, mm. repeatable phenomena, and a lot of it revolved around one individual. But that particular event on the same day, earlier in the morning, mm. um, early hours of the morning versus my sighting that night or at twilight, mm. um, on the same day, what occurred there was that uh, a lot of students had made the decision to leave the colleges and move out onto properties or into houses inside the town of Armadale or on the farming properties surrounding Armadale. Mm. And I think three people were staying out at this property, um, Mount Butler, and there was this disturbance. A, um, um, one of the gentlemen goes outside. Um, that he calls them out and yells out, you know, mm. in fright kind of thing. And uh, the two other two rush out and mm. they see what appears to be this monk, a, a white apparition with a black face, uh, in front of the of the the main the first guy that went out, mm. and then um, at that point um, they had the impression that it was like a flash gun effect, and that the flash seemed to enter into the chest of the guy, mm. and he falls down on the ground, and um, seemed to be incoherent, um, and then. Um, they try to help me inside. Um, um, he, he's uh, still. Uh, I'll probably get after uh, this length of time getting the sequence slightly right, but the, de- the, the details are there for people to read. But essentially, what, what happens is that he, they managed to help him outside again. He seemed to be coming good, but then uh, his favourite horse comes rushing up to him, rears up above him. And then there's like this flash, they say, out of him into the horse, and then it goes out of the horse. This is what they describe, like mm. as if the guy was possessed. Mm. Uh, that's the impression. They, they felt it was the spirit of the guy's father. But I didn't know what to think of that. I, I only got fragments of it to begin with and took me months before I got full recorded interviews with, with all the parties and that kind of stuff. Mm. But by that stage, there was recurring UFO phenomena, balls of light, green plasma balls, uh, white balls of light, structured objects being seen, 
mm. in around this area. So uh, mm. I had quite an interesting time documenting what was going on here. But yet here was a, another window or a flap area by that time um, mm. ongoing, you know, right on my doorstep. You know, and, uh, and certainly by 73, I was also had another UFO flap area occurring up on the Dorigo Plateau at Turingham and Darabin, but that mm. was much more enduring and mm. much more focused. Mm. Um, and that really got me interested. And it's, it's interesting because the, uh, the world of science relies on the scientific method and the scientific method relies on repeatable ex, ex, uh, experimentation. But, um, and, and as recently as this week, Caleb Scharf wrote in the Scientific American, and I quote, all UAP slash UFO incidents are non-repeatable. We can't go back and perform the experiment of that exact ob observation again. But um, as, as we've discussed, your experience, you're able to identify the phenomenon occurring in specific localities for extended periods um, in, in these flaps. So can you, can you talk to us a little bit more about, about these flaps that you investigated? Yeah. yeah, well, I actually gave a presentation to a UFO conference in Gosford, in the Central Coast, way back in 1976, and the title of the paper was UFO Flaps, a Context for Scientific Study. Mm. And the, the rationality of that, or the, the rationale rather, I should say, was that this was an, where you could almost invoke the core kind of value of, of the scientific method, and that is the repeatable experiment. Now, if you can go to those areas, and witness the same sort of thing um, under, uh, you know, under observation or have recording equipment, mm. then you've got the potential of something that comes pretty close to the uh, to the mainstay scientific method of a repeatable experiment. And true enough, um, when I eventually, uh, I was kind of like um, a bit of a um, reporting centre in my college. <laughs> um, Elbaze College uh, for UFO sightings and weird crap going on or weird <laughs> stuff happening in the region. And so the word got out that there was some guy there on campus who was happy to investigate this kind of strange stuff. Mm. And um, so I was getting a lot of leads and um, there was a growing cool little group that we had going. And it was on this occasion that we had the... Um, um, a local electronics technician at a little, uh, hesitate to call it a village because it, there's hardly any houses there, but he was based in Turingham, which mm. was about halfway between Grafton and Armadale, if you take the old Ebor Road, uh, mm. and sort of just on the foothills of the, um, the Dorigo Plateau. And uh, he is telling me that, um, look, we've had this stuff going on now for a couple of days, you know, Night after night, we're having these agile, bright lights zigzagging backwards and forwards, hovering above Boney Mountain, which was the, the local name for, uh, I think it was called Mount Highland officially. Um, and uh, this was recurring, going on and on. And I said, well, and I started to really pay attention to him. You know, what, you've seen it for longer than one day? What, you're having multiple sightings? And he said, yeah, 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 everybody in the area is seeing this stuff, you know, and it's been going on. And, uh, mm. uh, and uh, he encouraged me to come up and visit because, you know, the way it seemed to be playing out, it was pretty regular. And eventually I got up there, I think it was the following weekend or the weekend after. And by that stage, literally every night there was stuff happening. 
mm. um, for this very intense period of several months. And so I started to go up there practically every weekend and I dragged the odd occasional person with me mm. and that's like they borrowed gear from the university and from various faculties. Um, as long as I got back on Monday, everything was fine and kosher. <laughs> so um, we're doing all sorts of th- things. But back in that day, you know, we didn't have the luxury of handheld cameras and you know, all that kind of stuff. We were lugging heavy-duty tripods trying to eliminate camera shake and we're but what we were witnessing was agile lights um, that take a position up above Boney Mountain. We, we'd set up in front of the local so-called corner store. There were no corners in Turingham, but mm. they called it the corner store. Mm. And uh, night after night, we'd be seeing this. But the problem we had, and this is where it really gets uh, irritating and underwhelming in terms of the scientific method, is that whatever these were, they were showing an elusiveness mm. that went beyond mere that was, mm. that these things would like night after night they'd be over Bunny Mountain. We'd get mm. set the gear up, mm. and we'd be watching, trying to get them on camera. Mm. One person local got them already on film already and got a got photographs of them. Mm. Uh, that seemed to be the last opportunity to successfully photograph them because yep. we were dragging along all sorts of gear. Yep, and it was just incredibly frustrating. We got to stage thinking. They're playing a game with us. Mm. Whatever is going on, it, it's just like a game. Mm. Like we had to get up in the right direction, and then they'd turn up behind us. That we'd lumber around with the heavy <laughs> gear, and then they'd take off. You know, all that kind of stuff. And we thought, this is this is a joke. You know, like what what what's going on? And this was night after night, mm. like it was playing games with us. So eventually, it, it got so frustrating. But the weird part of it was that there was a lot of ongoing things of what I see to be actual objects that seem to land behind the mountain. The mm. mountain would then take up a glow as if something was rising above the mountain. The whole mountainside would be glowing. Now, we, look, we looked into distant headlights and way behind the mountains to see if there was some sort of cause to it. Mm. Uh, closer we got to locations we, uh, where things seemed to come down, we'd have compasses sort of rotating wildly and all that kind of stuff and we're thinking, oh, there's something interesting here. Um, mm. Are we on some sort of geological fault line or something like this or whatever? But no, mm. we come back half an hour later and there's no compass effect, you know, and we're thinking, what's going on here? And and there was also a high degree of what you would refer to as paranormal phenomena going on as well. Mm. Uh, some really weird phenomena. And mm. the, the most striking light for me personally, just to give you an idea of the intensity of it, Mm. was that at, uh, at a point, and I think it was very late in August or something of that nature, I can't remember the exact date, I'd have to look it up, but it's there in one of the links that, that I'll provide for you, where um, for a few nights running that they had been experiencing the local um, uh, electronics technician, Warwick, and his wife were living there and they had a, a house uh, guest staying there as well. And I was staying there as well. I'd been staying there for two weeks. Mm. Fucking it. My whole principle was to act as a vacuum cleaner. I, I never told them anything that I witnessed. I was just interested to hear what they had and uh, take on board everything, mm. no matter how weird it seemed. Mm. This particular night, there'd been a couple of nights of what they call phantom truck noises. It was a weird auditory phenomenon. And as it approached, you couldn't see anything. Mm. Um, and this droning would become really intense like buzzing bees mm. and and uh, quite often when it got into close proximity with the house, 
the electrical gear would start to fail, the clocks would stop, that kind mm. of thing. Mm. So on wow. this particular night, I'd gone down to, uh, um, yeah, I wasn't on much of a budget, by the way. I, I was hitchhiking or being picked up, whatever, <laughs> and, and the electronics technician trusted me enough to lend me his car, mm. uh, a panel down, to drive around. The, he knew what I was doing. Uh, around about 11 o'clock at night, I would drive around the valley. Yeah. I told him, don't tell anybody I'm doing this. I'm driving around the valley after midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Mm. This particular night, I'd walked up this big wire fence around the property, mm. and I'm thinking, uh, I'm buggered. I, I don't think I'm going to – I'm feeling a bit tired. And I thought, mm. no, I might give the drive tonight. Mm. I walk up to the thing. I open the gate up, and straight in front of me, I walk into this really intense column of cold air. Mm. And I'm thinking, what, what's that? And I, I mm. feel it, and I could put my hand into it, and mm. I could feel like it was just a, like a – a thick column of mm. intensely cold air, very localised, mm. and it seemed to have dimension to it. And mm. and then I'm starting to think, oh, I think I'm losing it here. I'm getting <laughs> too tired or whatever. Mm. Uh, it seems to then disappear and then unpucks the trees ahead of me. Mm. It appears the light and it seems to be shining a beam straight down onto the property. And I think, is that a very bright star? But it wasn't as it turned out. Mm. And... Um, behind me and the whole house is lighting up this is around about 11 12 o'clock at night mm-hmm. um and then um i'm looking at this and then that light went out and then from that position up overhead appears what to me was like a more distant sighting of exactly the same thing i'd seen the year before the daylight mm-hmm. for the, the bright silvery metallic disc that had an angular size mm-hmm. but it was further away mm-hmm. and i'm thinking skylight or something, but it was too big to be Skylab mm. and wasn't in the right position. But it went over like this and then went out of sight. And I thought, mm. wow, yeah. Yeah. By that stage, I'm thinking, yeah, very weird. And then I, I, I thought, I hung around for a short time and I, and I was starting to feel fatigue. I thought, I'm mm. not going to drive. I go back, go to bed. Mm. And then I'm woken up by this intense auditory phenomena mm. again. I rush outside and, and there's nothing there. Um, but next morning at the breakfast table, uh, um, Warwick's wife, uh, Sandra, was saying, I know Warwick was saying to his wife, tell Bill about your dream. Mm. And she had a bit of a flu going on. And, and she tells me this weird thing about uh, having the experience of. Uh, um, well, first of all, she said, Bill doesn't want to know about dreams, for God's sake. You know, there's a bit of an argument going on. And anyway, I'm, I'm just being the vacuum, sucking up whatever information, uh, sort out what's relevant later mm. or what may or may not have been relevant. Mm. Anyway, she proceeds to tell me that around, just around about midnight, and this is about the time that I was outside, mm. she has this, she can't get out of bed, she's feeling too crook, mm. and she has this dream a transparent dish-shaped object passing over the property near the water tank where I was, mm. um, with people inside of it, in a trajectory that took it close to the similar trajectory that I was seeing in reality when I was out there. Mm. Warwick also reported that they had the auditory phenomena that I witnessed later that woke me up, but they said that um, they heard it as almost approaching the house and mm. the electric clock cut out at that stage. Mm. 
Mm. So th- that was one example of one very weird night uh, mm. where I see this uh, like a vision that she had that I seem to be having something similar to it mm. occurring while I was out there in reality. So mm. it, it was a crazy night, very Absolutely. strange night. But that wasn't, wasn't unique. Um, I, I was there for quite some time. If people want to read detail about it, you know, they can have a look at the links. Absolutely. We'll, be, we'll yeah. post the links Um with the with the with the notes to this show, um, do you feel it was interacting with you, or do you feel you were uh, a bipartisan witness to something that was was happening? Well, the the elusiveness that went, what we felt beyond chance, where we'd set up, and then they would be in the other direction. That certainly made us think they were aware of us, mm. but. As it became more and more complex and very, very strange, and there seemed to be this consciousness element going on, mm. really weird phenomena. The UFOs were still being seen, bouncing around, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, it was just one crazy time. But that's why when uh, a year later, a book got published called The Utah UFO Display mm. by Dr. Frank Salisbury, who was a biologist um, with the University in Utah. And the centre of that area, the whole Utah area, turns out later on, decades later, to become the home of the so-called Skimwalker Ranch. Mm. And so some of the weird phenomena that Frank Salisbury reported in about 74, 75 in his book, uh, that area was inundated with UFO sightings. Mm. But later, as we got to learn more and more about the so-called Skimwalker Ranch, it was, to me, it was like deja vu. Like, yep. Whoa, that's very similar to what I was experiencing in Tiringham. Uh, mm. Some of the weirder stuff going on. So mm. while while it seems to be informed to mock what's going on at Skimwalker Ranch, and and plus when they turn it into a kind of a a theme of a a reality show, um, I, I, I no, I, I I'm kind of all for putting instrumentation and monitoring in these kind of areas to see what we get. Mm. So I admire what, what the new owner uh, has done with the property mm. and I hope he continues and I hope he documents it all in, in much more detail. But to date, I haven't been able to see much in the way of heavy-duty data, just mm. sort of basic information. Mm. But it appears as though Skinwalker represents another classic area where there might be repeatable phenomena going on worthwhile enough to even, uh, God forbid, put on a reality show for, mm. for uh, you know, Secrets of Skinwalker Ranch. So, mm. Um, mm. Those areas, those kind of areas are not isolated. They, they exist all over the planet. Yeah, it's, it's interesting Lots because of- uh, it's, and I guess it's a human um, reaction to try and rationalise it or make sense of what it's doing uh, can you make? Can you rationalise it at all, or is it, or is it just too, I guess, bizarre? Um, well, back back in the day in the seventies, it was pretty strange, and, and you had people like John Keel writing books like Operation Trojan Horse, where he was hypothesising window areas, and this is what a lot of people interpret these local flap areas as as being like windows. Mm. And now the big in thing is to. Uh, Maybe there's portals there or whatever, and even the people operating with the original, well, uh, Robert Bigelow, uh, who financed a scientific kind of operation there at Skinwalker Ranch, some of his own scientists witnessed what appeared to be 
opening portals or rifts and things coming out, you know, a pretty staggering claim. Mm. Um, but some of the things we witnessed on this area around Tiring and Darabin on the Dorigo Plateau were also pretty weird. Mm. So that's why I, when I saw all that later on, decades later, I thought, well, that's interesting. And mm. again, as I said, this happens at a lot of different locations. You've got to do a lot of work to determine whether you're dealing with wishful thinking or force fit, trying to turn something weird that isn't actually very weird and that events might have prosaic explanations. I think you have to do due, due diligence mm. to eliminate all that. Mm. But uh, to me, it appears like Skinwalker might have something bona fide there mm. and it's uh, worth paying attention to it. Mm. Uh, but... Um, also, too, though, I'm sometimes a bit underwhelmed with some of the things that are being presented in the show. Sure. As being weird, but, but subsequently might have an explanation for it. Um, Absolutely. Um, um, I, I do advocate instrumented monitoring of these areas because that could yield a lot of incredibly useful information. Definitely. And there are people out there doing that precise thing right now. Mm. Mm. Uh, are any of the the flaps that you've been um, that you've investigated are they still active or or do they tend to last for a certain time and 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 then become inactive? Well, a lot go that way. But uh, for example, Tyrion, one of my favourite areas. I went there. I think was it 2012, 2013. Back on a return visit. Mm. I've been back there previously on other occasions. Been a bit of activity, and but this was a long time after. You know, we're talking gosh, um, 30, 40 years. Mm. And I, I go back and then it turns out um, I visit the corner store, it's still operating, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm talking, and I said, oh, do you have any of this weird UFO phenomena happening around? And no, uh, no, nah, nah, none of that stuff around here, mate. No, 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 no. It's funny, I used to be good friends with Jan, the, um, the owner of the corner store back in the 70s, and uh, we used to sit together and watch the, UFOs cavort over Boney Mountain. He says, "Oh, are you are you Bill?" She says, "Oh, uh, yeah, 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 I'm, yeah, I'm Bill Toyer." And and they said, "Oh, yeah, unfortunately, Mum passed away a couple of years ago." And uh, but she used to talk about that time all the time. Mm. And then I asked the question again: "Has there anything been happening in this year?" Oh, yeah, yeah, it has been. You know, like <laughs> it was a close planet just over the back of the hill of the store and then the story started to roll out. Now, like, that's typically what happens in these areas. If you aren't kind of um, careful about your approaches in areas like this, you'll learn nothing. Mm. But if you've got some connection like I did, mm. which only happened to come up accidentally, mm. I would have pushed it anyway because mm. um, uh, I wanted to ask specifically about Gemma if she's still around. Mm. And um, that turned out her daughter was running the store. Mm. Um, so it was interesting to hear that stuff was still ongoing. Um, but a lot of the communities that were there had moved on. And so the whole dynamic of the, of the valley and the area was starting to change. And, sure. Um, um, so you would have had to set up a whole new reporting system or communication and, and really spend a lot of time there, which I, I would like to do again because it was fascinating time absolutely absolutely Uh, i I found newspaper clippings going back to about 1928 of strange auditory phenomena described as like truck noises 
over the Doric area near Turingham. Mm. This seemed to be almost like somebody's reporting the weird, what we call, we christened them phantom trucks. Mm. Like trucks that went there that uh, if they came close enough to the house, the electrics would go off, that, that kind of stuff. It was yeah. a very strange time. Mm. Uh, but that's, I think, the cornerstone of, I think, where science could apply um, the opportunity to do a sort of a repeatable experiment. So there is that possibility of doing a sort of repeatable experiment uh, with UFOs and, and or UAPs, mm. and it's already happening. Mm. Um, and there are groups out there that are trying to find these areas and monitor them. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, it's mm. definitely happening. Mm. So that kind of work I admire, and I'm, I monitor that kind of work. Yeah. Absolutely. But that was my that was that was my so called baptism of UFO fire back in the seventies. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And um, and the next thing we're going to take a take a look at um, is is um, is the work you did in the eighties. Bill, how long had the Royal Australian Air Force been investigating or taking reports into UFOs? Yeah, formerly the RWF became the official government examiner uh, mainly around about 1950, but in terms of records, there's not much there uh, starting in 1950 and there's a bit more numerous files throughout up to about the period of 1954 Mm. Um, but I had a few hundred reports by that stage. Um, there was evidence of earlier um, uh, ad hoc kind of investigations as early as 1930 by the future uh, Air Marshal of the Department of Defence, um, namely Sir George Jones. Mm. He was asked to go down to Warrnambool uh, to check out what all these mysterious lights are all about, you know, and so he, 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 he told me I actually had the... Uh, remarkable opportunity to sit down and talk with him uh, mm. in his early 90s. Mm. He's telling me, and I expected it to be a very fragmentary member, but he um, a memory of it, but he had a very sharp memory of it. Talked about seeing, uh, not seeing anything himself, but actually interviewing people and trying to get to the bottom of it. He could never figure out what was going on, mm. but they kind of probably dismissed it on the day. But there's even earlier evidence, as early as uh, 1914. Of investigations mm. of strange lights, even uh, Smithy, uh, Kingsford Smith, mm. uh, was seconded to do investigations of strange light phenomena during World War One. Of course, most of it was put down to possible German activity, but mm. that didn't seem to pan out. But he was busily running around chasing light, mysterious light records, flying lights um, uh, around the Central Coast area back in uh, I think uh, ni- uh, 1918. Mm. Uh, before he became famous. So, mm. uh, so there were other players that were doing it very early in the show. But in terms of the formality of it, from 1950 onwards, the Air Force was in the flying saucer game. Mm. By 1954, they were getting pretty frustrated with the UFO game. They actually brought in a, a scientist with a security clearance, uh, Harry Turner, to undertake a review of what they were doing because they are getting hammered by politicians of the day what's all this about flying saucers we mm. want to know what's going on mm. and so they, they accepted the request from harry turner who was a nuclear physicist to study their files mm. rather remarkably he compared the data which he felt was somewhat limited but there was not enough reports to do a study of mm. um 
he compared it to US data that was becoming available by the likes of Donald Keogh, um, uh, uh, who was receiving actual case material from the US Air Force through his connections. He had long historical connections with military, um, was even like um, an assistant to Charles Lindenberg, so he was quite well, well known. Mm. Uh, he prepared this report uh, based on the Australian and US data and mm. concluded that uh, mm. it was a, um, a there, there was some material in there and some sightings that actually supported the hypothesis that a um, possible extraterrestrial origin recommended heavy duty radar coverage, uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, mm. so that was really early in the day. Absolutely. Uh, so in 1982, you were the first civilian researcher to gain access to the previously classified Royal Australian Air Force or the RAAF UFO files and made several visits to Canberra headquarters to the Directorate of Air Force Intelligence um, to, to look into those files. So how did this come about and how did you feel seeing those files for the first time? I can, I can imagine it would have been like uh, showing Pandora's box well, it was certainly interesting uh, um, to, to get that, and it was a lot of hard work to try and get access to it because basically I was really just um, selling the same message that they were putting out through their PR department that uh, hey, files were actually available in a redacted way for people to have a look at from time to time. And I thought, what? You know, everybody tries, but very few people, you know, that was very virtually unheard of. You, you, you might get, in, during the 70s, um, I was getting redacted case files on particular areas of interest. You'd write to the Air Force, you'd get maybe get their so-called annual summary of, and they called them not UAPs, not UFOs, but they called them UASs, uh, unidentified, or uh, sorry, unusual aerial sightings. That was their preferred term. And they, they would generate these summaries and it'd have basically the date, brief details and probable cause. And it was some of those probable causes that caused a bit of angst amongst various researchers and scientists, in fact, others, uh, but uh, that they didn't quite gel with the reality, you know, like calling something Venus when Venus hadn't even risen or something like that, or couldn't have been observed in the location, that kind of stuff. Or uh, one of their favorites, particularly during the seventies <clears throat> and back into the sixties was, uh, uh, willy willies or tornado-like meteorological phenomena that, or plasmas became a preferred thing for quite some time. So mm. um, there's a whole history of plugging that onto an unusual case. Um, the Air Force had their own kind of uh, solution to dealing with their unexplained sightings, and that was that basically they ignored them. Mm. Um, but, so, but from time to time, you'd see references to where you could get access to some limited sightings that they might send them to you or whatever. Mm. But in reality, um, I was trying for a direct access, you know, a real serious look at the totality of the files mm. and the envelope and surprisingly got permission to get access uh, to their files. And so I was eventually set up for January of 1982. Mm. Uh, and in fact, the time when most of the Department of Defence were on leave and uh, I was given uh, temporary uh, access to the 
office of the director of public relations. I had his office and they'd bring in these files. And I think there was a, a dozen or so files that were brought in. Uh, and apparently they either had limited commitment or limited time, but they brought these limited number of files in. Mm. And I, I, I got the impression that this ultimately, to the benefit of hindsight, was about a third of the files that were presented to me on my first visit. Mm. And um, I then sort of started to formally go through that. And one of my strategies was to look rigorously for case file numbers, mm. uh, file series numbers, that kind of stuff, looking for any threads that would lead to other files. Mm. And uh, they were probably expecting me to look at the files for an hour or two, leave, totally happy mm. but I arrived on the Monday at nine o'clock and returned and finished at five each day mm. for five days mm. and went through in detail those files mm. um, and so it was a very careful scrutiny I think they probably didn't realize what was going on but by the time of the fifth day mm. um, the uh, if, if memory serves me correctly, the squadron leader had returned from his holidays <laughs> and, and come to meet me. And, and uh, he rolls up in the office and there I have, I'm t I've got my camera up on a tripod in the office there taking <laughs> photographs of me standing there looking at the files. And he said, oh, it, um, it, it, that, that come through security? And he said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I was carrying a tripod over my shoulder <laughs> and being brought in by one of the secretaries. And she says, oh, look, I'll, I said, you can, you can have the film if you like, but as long as I get them back, I said, I had Christmas shots and all that kind of stuff on the film. Mm. He said, oh, don't worry about it. You, you know, I, I wasn't deemed to be a great security risk at that point <laughs> in time. So he asked me out because I think he was concerned about the paperwork. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, that was the first of a total of four visits. The last one of them, I think, occurred in 84, mm. um, where I was sort of systematically going through the files trying to get a, a perception of the totality of the files. Sure. And already it was, it was pretty clear that th there were other agencies involved as well. The RWF would pull in the CSIRO, that kind of thing, our uh, Commonwealth Science Organisation. Um, there were remnants of uh, other agencies involved. Um, and so that led to opportunities. And uh, basically, now cut a long story short, um, I was able to examine almost a pretty consistent series of files from about 1955 right through to 1984. Mm. Uh, bunch of files. Mm. And then started to then put feelers out for other people and things that were mentioned in the files and, and starting to follow multiple threads. Mm. And, uh, um, you know, I, I wrote about that access in... Uh, what Fairfax publication called Amiga Science Digest. Um, I think actually there's the, the, the first article. Ah. Um, and this was back in uh, September, October 1982. Wow. And uh, this is uh, one of the little uh, the photographs here. Yeah, that was my little candid shot <laughs> at the desk of the... DPR taking <laughs> photographs <laughs> and the, of, of the files of the X of the uh, X files, was, uh, the RAAS yeah, X so, files. 
Yeah, that's it. It was sort of interesting. And, and certainly the, what that file showed was that they were essentially seeing the same range of data mm. that civilian groups would. But the reality, to give you a calibration, was that I felt that there was a whole litany of lost opportunities here. There were really some impressive cases, but generally speaking, there wasn't a careful scientific investigation. Mm. And in fairness to the RWF and the Department of Defence, they weren't really chasing this. Their, their primary focus was national security, um, and uh, uh, and uh, they they felt as though they'd got tarred with the PR problem, the public relations problem, to explain away everything that the general public saw. Sure. But I was seeing case data from their own pilots, um, military, other military witnesses, civilians, scientists, all that kind of stuff. The very broad sp spectrum of UFO data that civilian groups were seeing, mm. but they probably held this up as being the final arbiter of flying saucers or mm. UASs or unusual aerial sightings in Australia. But the reality was that one single civilian group in Australia, and that was the Tasmanian UFO Investigation Centre, mm. had examined more case data mm. uh, than the entire run of the RWF. Mm. So if you wanted to go purely and simply on case data, mm. one little single state house, our smallest state, Tasmania, had examined more case data than the RWF. And so mm. probably I would apply more credibility to uh, the work of the Tasmanian UFO Investigation Centre than the RAF. Mm. The RAF had clearly other resources that they could count on, mm. but they, they, they weren't really looking at it as a serious problem other than possible potential for evidence of re-entries of foreign aircraft, you know, that they might want to chase up or, mm. or um, they were seeing it as money prosaic and any, any unexplained cases, they, they just left them as unexplained. Mm. More often than not, didn't the serious investigation. Mm. That was the picture that I received back then mm. and more or less argued that, um, uh, that it was more a case of uh, um, lack of interest, um, that they didn't really want to be doing this, mm. uh, that kind of thing. Mm. And too many uncertain PR problems, that kind of thing. Mm. And mm. Uh, so they, were so, they, they didn't take the the response that was would have been fairly obvious back in 69 to follow the path of the US Air Force and public withdraw themselves. But they continued their investigations right through to as late as 84, 85. You know, I, I'd written up a, a letter to the City Morning Herald in 80, 84, I think, uh, uh, acknowledging that they'd finally come to a probably in, inevitable decision that they felt that was they would no longer um, sort of request sightings from the, the general public and, and wouldn't investigate them and they would refer to them to civilian groups most mm. of the time, mm. so only, only interesting national security cases. So when it's highlighted that uh, they didn't get out of the game until 92, 90, 94, um, I think they were largely out of the public game by then, mm. well before then, mm. um, and it was just a formalisation process. Mm. But the irony was uh, when in formally 92, 1992, 94, they were signalling that they were officially out of it and they weren't accepting any more reports from the general public. Um, the evidence to me clearly showed that they were had long 
been out of the game long before 84. They were really doing it in a very low ebb. Mm. Um, and um, it was ironical to me that the officer um, that basically wrote the policy, the revised policy to get the Air Force officially publicly out of the UFO game, mm. um, cited the scientific record as reasons to inform their decision to, that there's nothing of merit here. Mm. And my my response to that, having examined their case file, was what scientific record? So <laughs> there was very little evidence of serious scientific investigation. Mm. Yet through all that, I was meeting defence officials, defence scientists that were highlighting that there was high-level interest in the UFO phenomenon, mm. but that was coming from more Western quarters like the Joint Intelligence Organisation um, chief defence scientist, mm. Dr. John Parents. Mm. Um, I was told by a naval pilot that Dr. John Farrens, as the chief de uh, defence scientist, had a high-level interest in UFOs. Mm. And so I, I rang up in retirement. I said, fully mm. uh, expecting to be fobbed off. And he says, no, 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 I was very interested. In fact, I was planning to write a book. Mm. And uh, he said, now I'll wait for yours. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> But unfortunately, he, he passed away a couple of weeks after my book, The Oswalds, came out in 1996. Mm. But he was a, a chief defence scientist, um, seriously interested in the UFO subject. Mm. So, uh, and through a number of other defence scientists, I was able to learn that there were more clandestine efforts going on. Mm. Um, do, you, do you feel it was curious that they they didn't think that they were a security threat. Like what conclusion had they already come to in order for them to have sort of, um, you know, left the game, so to speak? Had they, did they, do you think, and I'm asking you to speculate, so I apologise, but do you feel they thought they were just a, a bit of a pesky nuisance or is it more so that, as you say, the PR side that was, that was more of a nuisance? Yeah, I think a lot of it was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, routed home to their uh, public relations role that, that had very uncertain PR dimensions to it. And whenever they got caught up in a very controversial sighting, there weren't many positives for them. Mm. They were always being caught up in controversy. They were covering up. That was the usual call mm. from civilian groups. And, uh, mm. To be quite honest, they... Um, uh, there were some cases that implied that, you know, like, for example, today, you know, the often quoted cases, the Westall Steel case from 1966. Mm. I had a shopping disc when I went to examine the files and the, one of the top of the shopping ship was a file on Westall. There was none. Mm. Um, and uh, so you, you kind of wonder what was that all about? Mm. Because during that period of April um, 1966, there were a number of really classical cases uh, involved. Um, one that I, I thought was remarkable was the so-called bent headlights beam case, which could be another program on its own mm. discussing that case. Here's a case that involved a fatality uh, that may or may not have been related to what this driver saw. Mm. And that was an object in a field. As he drives past, his headlight beams bend towards the object mm. and then <laughs> went in a V-shaped bend, <laughs> really striking case as a scientist. Mm. That was a fascinating case to investigate. Mm. He received a visit from um, Air Force 
that showed him various photos in a in the folder and that kind of stuff. That's what mm. he, he told mm. me. And, uh, mm. It, it mm. seemed to be um, evidence that the RWF or military intelligence did investigate that case. Mm. No case law to be mm. found. Okay. So there was a lot of that happening where cases that appeared to have been investigated, there was no case file. So, mm. um, and, mm. the, and, and certainly Harry Turner, the defence uh, nuclear physicist, uh, told me that uh, uh, there were other more secure case files in, say, for example, the Joint Intelligence Organisation. Mm. Um, so I got access to some of those courtesy okay. of Harry Turner. Okay. So it's a long, complex history. Mm. But when they got out of the UFO game, um, basically, um, um, I feel that they have continued to investigate through various mechanisms cases that occur uh, amongst their own flight crew and personnel, that kind sure. of thing. Mm. But uh, very rarely see much of that. Yeah, um, so it's, it's it's out of the spotlights, out of the civilian spotlight at least, isn't it? So um, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There, um, there clearly are mechanisms, and, and uh, Paul Dean, uh, who you spoke to uh, as the opening guest, uh, has done a lot of interesting kind of follow-ups in that area to try and uncover the, the various mechanisms that are in place now, mm. and there there are some different uh, mechanisms in place now, but uh, when you look at the level of uh, and apparent attitudes that are brought forward by the Pentagon, the US Department of Defense, mm. the lack of coherency in terms of their approach, well, I think that coherency or lack of coherency exists in Australia as well. Mm. The, the Department of Defense or RWF say, say that they don't investigate UAPs or mm. UFOs. Mm. They're not They're not interested. Mm. That, that was the official responses recently as a couple of months ago. Mm. But uh, I would think that there's other things going on, particularly with some of the case material that I've heard about. So. Yeah. Okay. And that's yeah. That's um, that's um, Christopher the Mill. Um, definitely. Uh, I think for us to um, discuss um, again, um, with regards to when you when you looked at all those files, spent spent the time looking at the the files. Did anything stand out to you that you didn't expect that you hadn't seen before? Um, well, yeah, yes, clearly there were a lot of things that I hadn't been aware of previously, um, mm. uh, individual cases and that kind of stuff, which screamed out for more serious, deep investigation. But really, uh, some got there, there were a few cases, really impressive cases that uh, got a bit of an investigation, but it seemed as though um, uh, most of the personnel involved weren't really. Uh, strongly supported to do in-depth investigations, so mm. just to follow the policy, get it out of the way, and mm. um, sort of what if it was national security? Well, okay, they'll look at it, and it becomes non-public at that point. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, some cases were very, very impressive. Mm. And and I I guess too. Yeah, no, I was going to say, um, and I think it's 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 easy to forget, but. Um, at the time, the stigma was so strong, uh, and and it still has been up until very recent times that um, you wouldn't be doing yourself a favour to to take a, a sincere or thorough interest. Um, uh, it, it, it would do your career no 
no, um, you know, uh, yeah, a lot no good. I dealt with during my time between eighty two and eighty four. I dealt with two different um, uh, intelligence officers that were, were part of Daffy, the director of Air Force Intelligence, and uh, it was clear to me that they weren't that excited about being in the role. Uh, in fact, uh, I was being requested from time to time to actually provide them with information about my uh, studies of the files. It seemed to get to a point where I was even seconded and asked to provide information or perspective on their own files so that they could answer the, the minister mm. about a particular inquiry that had come up. So mm. I became the temporary go, go-to person to get advice as to how to answer a ministerial inquiry, which I thought was pretty amusing. No, but uh, that, that, that was, it got to a stage where I think I, I knew their files better than they did. Mm. Uh, and this is the serving intel officer. But, uh, yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a mixed bag, mixed bag. In mm. terms, but there were cases that were really interesting that followed paper trials, like finding Harry Turner through the files. Mm. And I found references to him in stuff as early as the, the, the mid to late 50s mm. and references to him in the late 60s and early 70s. And I thought, who is this person? Mm. Mr. O.H. Turner. Mm. and feel us out and then oddly enough I get a letter back from Harry Turner himself saying that uh, the Joint Intelligence Organisation and others have told me that you're looking for me here I am <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, that started off a long long kind of connection with him um, and uh, yeah he had a, an awful lot to add to the UFO picture absolutely in Australia mm. yeah. Pick a, 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 another another detailed discussion absolutely which we will i will definitely take you up on um but um i think let's let's um let's wrap it up there bill we've, we've talked about a lot and um i want to share with the guests um your amazing website and, and your books as well but i feel like there's um we've touched we've only touched we haven't even actually scratched the surface have we i think there's a lot more to this iceberg um beneath the surface which which we will catch up again and talk more about um it's been a great honor to talk to you this evening and um i hope my guests are more familiar actually with the exceptional knowledge of the phenomenon that you have and i'm proud to report we're going to discuss that um, um in in future programs um if you haven't subscribed to this podcast though or the youtube channel please do so to make sure you're alerted of the new content um bill chalker is the author of two books the Oz Files, The Australian UFO Story, published by Duffy and Snellgrove. And the, the other book is Hair of the Alien, DNA and Other Forensic Evidence of Alien Abductions by Pocket Books. His website, theozfiles.blogspot.com, is an absolute well of content devoted to the phenomenon. So um, please go check it out. I promise you won't be disappointed. In fact, you'll be on there for years because there is just so much fantastic content. Um, so thank you so much again, Bill. I, um, I really appreciate your time and you sharing with us your, your, your stories um, and the information and knowledge that you have. And I'm really looking forward to catching up with you again very soon. Mm, look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.